when I was in seminary, uh, there was a class we had to take on counseling, you know, like meeting peop with people one-on-one -on -one and talking through like what's going on in their life and helping them. And I remember there was this image that we talked about of kids, how to tell if a kid has like a secure attachment, feels safe with their parent. And it was this image of like the mom or dad can be at the playground, can be sitting on a bench kind of off to the side, and the kid feels free to run and play on the playground. They're not going to get abandoned. Their, their uh, parent isn't going to leave them. They feel this safety of like, I can go on this playground and mom or dad is going to be there. There's this security that there's always going to be somebody to come back to. And they can try things and they can fail and they can fall and ask for help. And that's kind of like the picture of uh, what a secure, safe attachment with a parent would be. And when I heard that, uh, I just thought, isn't that a description of what our life with God ought to be like? That we have this secure safe attachment where we feel free to just go run on the playground uh, and do what we want and be okay with failing and we know he's not going to leave us and we all want that freedom in life to be able to explore to have fun to try new things to make mistakes to fail uh, to be ourselves and to be okay needing help we want to be like that kid on the playground and imagine life and whatever it brings is like i want to be able to play on that and feel safe doing it but the problem is that we often are very self-conscious uh, about ourselves uh, that we uh, are self-conscious about what people think of us. We want to kind of manage the image that people have of us, and we can feel insecure and afraid to upset people. Well, if I try that, I might fail, and this person will be upset with me, or if I don't do that, and we get afraid of other people and are very self-conscious, and we have a hard time actually being ourselves. We kind of only tend to only show people the self we think they will like and the self they think they, we think they will love, and we hide the rest of it. And for me, this, this message is kind of coming out of uh, my time on sabbatical. And one of the things, the messages uh, in my head that I go through life uh, with is do it right the first time or else. Does anybody else have that feeling? Like, I need to do this right, and I don't get a second shot. I have to do it right the first time or else. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, but to, today I wanted to start a three-week series as I was considering, we came back from sabbatical, uh, what does the church need, what do we need to talk about, and I usually, after we come back from a vacation or something, I always feel like I need to get my bearings on like where the church is at, what's been happening, what do people need. Um, and this was eight weeks away. Uh, and I just, usually when I come back from something like that, I just want to share like, this is what was sticking out to me or a passage that was speaking to me because it's a good way to transition back. And then actually, as I was thinking about it, you know, this is, I'm actually going to turn this into three weeks. And what this is going to be called these three weeks are lessons on God's love. And they come out of uh, this, this journal which I started in September 2015 and finished last year in April. And I basically made this my one, one day a month. I drive up to Lake Geneva and I meet with a, a spiritual director and I pray and kind of, you know, it's almost like a monthly spring cleaning of like, okay, what's going on in me? What am I feeling afraid of? What am I upset about? And I would journal in here every time I went up there. And then I fill it up last April. And during sabbatical, when we went down in June, I was like, I want to go back through it and read it and just see what God said to me and what he was speaking to me. And I had a highlighter highlighting certain themes. And then as I was thinking about these messages, I was like, you know, it'd be kind of cool to go to take some of like the main sayings I came up with that helped me and turn that into a sermon series. And so today is, is the start of that coming out of these journals. And really, I would call it a, a love journey of, okay, I know about God's love. And I felt it, but there's a lot of situations where I'm not feeling it in. It's like knowing about it and knowing it, like by experience, by feeling it, 
was something I was after. And of course, I you know wasn't like before this journal, like I didn't know God loved me. It's like we I knew it, I knew about it, but there were just areas of my life where it wasn't taking effect. And so I would call this journal my like love journey, um, which actually ended up why I got this tattoo, which is a, kind of part of the whole story to see why. Is like I was like I want to mark this. I felt like I'd hit a milestone with God of like really feeling loved by Him is like my default uh, feeling in life. And I was like, I want to mark this in some way. And it was uh, so uh, significant that I, I ended up getting a tattoo. And it's like, okay, do I know God's love? It's like, yes, but there's always more of it to feel. And so we're going to go over three sayings that have helped me um, that came out of this, this journal. And today, uh, you know, this was my first sabbatical I've ever been on. And so it's like, okay, I had to wait eight years for this one. I'm going to have to wait another five or six for another one. And I kept asking myself at the beginning, am I doing this right? Uh, is, is this how I'm supposed to be doing this? And then when I got to the end, I started to ask myself, did I do that right? Like, my eight weeks are gone, and now I have to wait however many years. Like, did I do that right? And I had this self-conscious feeling of like, well, I'm supposed to do it this way. And I'm supposed to be able to come back and say X, Y, and Z. People are going to ask me, how was it? And I want to be able to say, you know, what they expect me to say. And it's like feeling this pressure of like, am I doing this right? Did I do this right? And it's kind of like being on that playground as a kid, feeling like, can I make mistakes? Is it okay for me to try to go up this piece of equipment and not be able to make it? Is it okay for me to be like, I think this will be good for me, and it's like, no, I want something else. Uh, do I feel that freedom to play, uh, and I'm going to be safe and secure with God no matter what? Is it okay to, f- to make mistakes and fail? And this, is, this isn't one of the sayings, but why we're talking about freedom today is this is kind of like, as I was ending my sabbatical, this is what I felt God was saying to me, that the Christian life isn't about getting better, but getting freer. I don't know if that's a word or not. Uh, I wrote the word free-er. You know, the Christian life isn't about getting better, but getting freer, feeling more free in God's love, not being like, I need to keep getting better and better and better and better, and my stats have got to be good. I've got a good Bible reading streak, a good prayer streak, and I'm doing this and that. It's like that better is like, no, it's not about getting better, but getting freer. And actually, the more free we get, the better we will become, even not trying to do it ourselves. And so we're going to look at the book of Galatians this morning, get kind of a big picture uh, look at it, because one of the big themes in it is freedom. And I want to give you this question as we go through it. How much does God love you, and why? How much does God love you, and why? How much does God love you, and why? So the first thing that we need to talk about in Galatians is God's laws. If you look throughout the Bible, you'll find many laws and rules and commands that God gives. And because they're all over the place. And so we tend to relate to those laws, to those commands, to those rules in one of two ways. First, some of us can't see how God could love us if we don't keep the rules. Some of us don't see how God could love us if we don't keep the rules. So it's like, God isn't going to love me unless I keep these rules, laws, and commands. Second, some of us can't see how God could love us if he gives us rules to keep. Like, well, why would God put all these rules, all these commands, all these laws in my life? Like, a good and loving God uh, wouldn't do that. He wouldn't put all these restrictions. He would just let me be free to do what I want, to do what I feel, to pursue, you know, to be me. And so first, some of us can't see how God could love us if we don't keep the rules. Second, some of us can't see how God could love us if he gives us rules to keep. And under both of those is a belief that God doesn't really love us. 
If we don't keep the rules, he doesn't really love us. If, we, he, if he gave us rules to keep, he doesn't really love us. And we have this problem of, like, does God love me? And what do we do with all these commands and rules and uh, laws in the Bible? And so this guy uh, named Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. This is sometime after he was converted to become a Christian. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, was a master rule follower. He was what uh, was called a Pharisee. If you've ever read through the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, you'll notice that he interacted with the Pharisees a lot. This was a religious group, a Jewish religious group, and one of their focuses was we need to keep the laws, and we need to figure out strategies for keeping all these laws. And in fact, there was the laws, and then they had their own rules kind of as a fence around the laws, so you wouldn't even get close to breaking them. It's like, here's the laws, let's make a little buffer so we don't even get close to, close to breaking any of those rules. And so Paul was a master rule follower. He had the Old Testament memorized and strategies for how to keep all those laws and rules in it. And you'll see Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, what Paul was, is he was always engaging with them and calling them out on how they were self-righteous, how they were judgmental, how they looked down on others, how they felt better than others. And he called them out on their pride that you can't be right with God by your effort. This is prideful. If you think you can be right with God by what you do, you're thinking way too highly of yourself. And Paul... He lived this life. He knew what this was. If Jesus had met Paul, he would have uh, called him out on his pride too because Paul eventually, uh, he's trying to destroy the church. He's trying to destroy other Christians because he's like, this whole thing of what you guys are preaching about Jesus, like this doesn't, isn't the way. And he's, so he was trying to stop it. And he had this radical encounter with Jesus and became a Christian. And so he left that way of relating to God through the rules and through the laws behind and in the book of Galatians, he writes this letter to a church some 20, 30 years after he's converted. And these Christians are being persuaded to start relating to God through rules. They had heard about Jesus. They had entrusted with Jesus. Like, okay, I can be right with God because of what Jesus has done. It's not about what I do. And then some people had come along and started influencing this group. And they started to turn away from Jesus just a little bit and start to relate to God through rules and laws and commands once again, relying on their ability to obey God's laws for their standing with God. Basically, if you keep God's laws, you'll be good with God. It's like, you know, we might ask that to each other, like, are we good? Like, we just kind of had a little fight there. Like, we aren't talking to each other nice, but are we good? Like, are we okay? And it's like, if they were to ask God, are we good? Are we okay? It'd be like, well, we are if you kept my laws, my rules, my commands. And that's how they started to relate to God again. And so Paul speaks to them from experience. You can see this, especially in chapter 2, verse 16. He basically says to him, what are you doing? Why are you turning to following rules as the basis for your standing with God? Are you nuts? This isn't what he actually said. Sorry, this is like my paraphrase. But the letter is kind of like this. I'm basing it off of 2.16 uh, in Galatians. What are you doing? Why are you turning to follow rules as a basis for, under, for your standing with God? Are you nuts? No one can be right with God through obeying the law because no one can obey it perfectly. If you want to be right with God that way, here you go. The, the uh, Jewish people have counted up 613 commands in the first five books of the Bible, the law. Uh, and if you want to try to relate to God that way, by keeping those 613 commands, good luck. You're never going to be able to do it. So if you want to be right with God through that, uh, you're never, it's never going to happen. And so the question would be, so how can we be right with God? And they've already heard a better way. Paul had already showed them a better way, and that's God's way. And so are there laws? Yes. Have we broken them? Yes. Have we fallen short? Yes. We don't measure up to what God asks of us. In God's law court, we are guilty and we're condemned because we stand before him as someone who's broken the laws. We're undeserving of love, of God's love. 
but the best, you know, two, the sh- one of the shortest phrases in the Bible is the phrase, but God. And so say, yes, have we fallen short? Yes, do we, we don't measure up. God, we do not deserve your love, but God does something. God, in his love, has made a way for us to be right with him, uh, apart from our ability to keep all his laws and commands and rules. And Paul describes it in Philippians 3.9. And that's on page 981. I'm just going to turn there and just read his test. This is another letter he wrote. And the way he describes uh, what he has now found in Jesus apart from following the law. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, page 981, if you're using one of the black Bibles. Now, right before this, he describes what his life was like uh, as a Pharisee. And it's just like, I was the best at keeping the law. I was so zealous. I was so committed. And you just read it and you get tired. Uh, like, man, how did he even keep up that way of life? But in verse 9, let me say, so he, actually we'll back up to verse 7. And actually at the end of verse 6, Philippians chapter 3, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul is like, I was doing it. I was living the life. I was getting right with God through keeping the rules. But verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here we go, verse 9 is where I want to focus. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so he says, I have this righteousness, but it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't come from me. Uh, It doesn't come from my ability to keep the rules, to obey, to be good. It comes through trusting in Jesus, he says. But now we need to ask, well, how does that work? Uh, How did he get this righteousness from trusting in Jesus? How does that work? Well, if you go back to Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. So Galatians was on page 972 of the Black Bibles, and then you would just, either the first page or second page, like Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 would be there. And Paul describes Jesus like this, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And look at this, who loved me and gave himself for me. We might ask, well, okay, gave himself to do what? What did Jesus give himself to do? And life, I mean, you can't get away from rules. Life is full of rules. Life is full of laws. And if you're like, I don't live with any rules or laws, uh, I don't expect you to be here in a couple weeks because we'll probably be in jail. Uh, Because, right, life is full of rules and laws, whether it's coming from the government, whether it's coming from personal relationships. And intuitively, we know that when a rule is broken, there's an IOU. There's a debt that needs to be paid. There's a payment. Because if you're standing in court, it's like, okay, we found you guilty of this. Here's your fine or here's your sentence. Is that if you've done something wrong, there's now a debt. There's a payment that needs to be made. Uh, A payment is required. And so that is going to happen. And in relationships, the same thing happens. It's like when somebody hurts you, uh, something needs to be paid. And there's one of two people that are going to pay. It's either the one who did wrong or the one who was wronged. One of two people will pay in a relationship, either the one who did wrong or the one who was wronged. So first, the one who did wrong pays by making it up to the person. Like if I did wrong to Katie and I would say like, okay, I need to make it up to you. Or maybe she would say, you need to make it up to me. And it's like, okay, after a week of doing the dishes, I've made it up to you. The debt has been paid and maybe we're good now. Or uh, 
for the record, I do most of the dishes. I'm really good at it, actually. <laughs> she says I'm really good at it. I'm also really good at stacking them to dry. I don't know, it's like something my mom taught me, but sorry, that's a tangent. Uh, okay, so either it could be the one who did the wrong could pay by making it up to them, or maybe they could pay by the wronged one saying, well, I'm going to kind of seek revenge. I'm going to get payback. Like if I had uh, you know, hurt Greg in some way, like had uh, disrespected him, and then he's like, I'm just going to kind of talk mean about Mitch to everybody. That's going to be my payback. He's going to pay for this somehow. That would be like a way to get revenge. So one option is the one who did wrong pays. The second option is the one who was wrong pays for the wrong done against them through forgiveness. They pay the other person's IOU. They don't hold it against them. They absorb the damage done to the relationship and they release that person from paying it back. You've wronged me. I'm not going to seek payback. You don't have to make it up to me. I forgive you. You're freed of this IRU, of this debt. And our issue is that we've wronged God in thought, in word, in deed, by what we've done, by what we've left undone. We have not loved him with our whole hearts. We have not loved other people as ourselves. We have said no to what God commands. We've said yes to what God forbids. And, I mean, really, Jesus says, sum it all up as two commandments. Love God with everything you are, with everything you have, and love other people yourself. It's like, only two? That should be easy, right? It's like, no, we've broken those every day, our whole life. We cannot keep just those two commandments. And so here's how we've wronged God. And so here's the thing. Either God pays or we pay personal relationship with God. Either God pays or we pay. And that's what it means for Jesus, the Son of God, to have loved me and given himself for me. He took our place to pay what we owe for the wrongs that we've done against God. He's paid for our forgiveness so that we can be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.19 In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And this, by the way, is why Jesus can't just be some really good teacher or some really good guy or somebody that uh, God was like, I really like him, and so I'm going like, to give him this exalted status. This is why Jesus must be God, because if he is not God, he cannot pay for wrongs done against God, right? Katie can't pay for a wrong done against me. If it's like, um, you know, you hurt me, and then it's like, well, you ask, like, well, am I going to let you go? Am I going to forgive you? No. I'm not going to pay for it, but Katie's going to pay for it. It's like, no, she's another person in this. I can't bring a third person in. It's our wrongs are against God, and so God must pay for those wrongs, and that's why Jesus must be fully God in the flesh as a person, so that he can pay for wrongs done against God. And so it's why uh, um, God himself pays for the death. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says it's this curse this curse that we brought upon ourselves, that we brought upon our relationship with God, that Jesus now takes that curse upon himself, this brokenness, this damage, this curse we brought to our relationship with God, God pays for it himself. He takes on the damage and the death that we brought to it. But it goes further than that. It's not just forgiveness, because it could be like, okay, cool, like I ask God, will you forgive me? He says yes, and I just kind of go on with my life. No, God wants more for us. He wants to have more of a relationship with us. And so Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 7, which were read to us by Connor. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so God the Father sent two other members of the Trinity. We believe in a God who has eternally existed as three equally divine persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Father sent the Son and sent the Holy Spirit, both. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. He sent the Son to absolve us of our wrongs against God, to give us forgiveness. Jesus pays our debt that we owe so we can be forgiven. And then the Spirit is sent to adopt us as beloved children of God. And you can see there that the Spirit, what the Spirit is doing, it's giving us a secure, safe attachment to God as our Father. And I had, I've mentioned this word attachment a couple times. Let me give this um, definition from a guy named Todd Hall. He says this, you become attached to someone when you rely on them for two things, comfort when you're upset, and an internal sense of security that allows you to explore your world both externally and internally. So you can sum those up as two things. The one is uh, to be attached to someone means they're your secure base. It's like that parent sitting on the bench at the playground. Um, it's like the kid feels safe because they have that secure base. I can explore the world that my parent is here. They're not going to leave. They're here for me. I can go out and explore the world because I have the secure base to come back to. And secondly, a safe haven for comfort when we're upset. And so just imagine this. So my son Hudson, if you open that door and he saw me, he would yell, Daddy! And he wouldn't run to Bob, right? <laughs> he wouldn't run to Vince. He would run to me because he is attached to me. And you see what the Spirit, what he says, the Spirit of his Son has been sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. When Hudson runs to that door, he's attached to me. And so he yells, Daddy, Abba, Father, to me. And the Spirit is what connects us to God. So we have that attachment where we're looking to God and saying, Daddy, Abba, Father, that we know he is our Father. And we know that we are his children, his beloved sons and daughters. And so for Hudson to be securely attached to me, it means that if we go to the playground, uh, I'm his secure base. Like he's going to feel free to explore because I'm there. And if he runs, if he gets hurt, he's not going to run to any of you except Katie because uh, he's going to attach to me. I'm his safe haven that he's going to go to for comfort when he's upset. And this is how God wants us to be with him, that we feel secure and safe, that we, he's our secure base to go out into the world and explore. And we don't have to feel so afraid like, am I doing this right? Did I do this right? Uh, is God going to be mad at me? He's our secure base. He's going to be there for us. And if we get hurt and need comfort, he has compassion. We come to him as our safe haven. And so last part of Galatians we're going to talk about, the last point, then we're going to talk about how to make this personal. In Galatians 5.1, Galatians 5.1 says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so we're told Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has set us free from earning our standing with God by what we do, wondering if we've done enough to earn his love, fearing we've lost his love every time we do something wrong, racking up spiritual points that we know God, are we good? Do I have enough spiritual points yet? You know, it's like being at some sort of arcade and you get the tickets out. And the prize I want to buy is God's love. And it's like, have I racked up enough points to buy that from him yet? And then even if you did buy it, you could lose it because you did something wrong. Now you go back into this cycle of, how do I get right with you, God? What am I going to do? I need to do enough. And he calls that, Paul calls that a yoke of slavery. Taking on this weight 
and this burden of earning a right and good standing with God. So we come back to that question, how much does God love you and why? How do you know you're good with God? How would you know if this morning, you know, somebody asked you, are you and God good? What would you say, yes or no, and why? Or how much does God love you right now, and why? It's like, well, he loved me a lot yesterday because I had a pretty good day. Didn't sin, didn't yell at my kids, didn't do anything I wasn't supposed to. But this morning, I don't know, things just, I was watching the news, it got on my nerves, I yell, or, you know, whatever it is. It's like, so hopefully tomorrow's a better day. I'll be good with God tomorrow, and he'll love me. Because of Jesus, we are free from basing our goodness, if we're good with God, or his love on our church attendance, on our Bible reading, on our prayer. It's not based on those things. And maybe you live with an or else over your life. Go to church or else. Get sober or else. Stop wasting time or else. Read your Bible, pray, give money, serve, volunteer. Stop looking at porn or else. Get your life together or else. It's exhausting walking on eggshells with God, walking through our life, being like, I need to do this right or else. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? And we're just waiting for God to finally be fed up. You know what? You can't get this together, so let's just call it quits. But we're told that Jesus gives us this invitation, Matthew 11. He says to us, Come weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. And we're told in Galatians 5.1, he's come to set us free, but we must come to him. And let me just mention this artwork we have. We have the cross here and those three images. What those all represent is Jesus with that invitation, come. If you're weary and heavy burdened of trying to be good enough for God and you're tired of living that way, come. All you weary and heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. Let me teach you how to relate to God. The, the first one is the good shepherd, Jesus caring, going off after the lost sheep and bringing it back. The second is the prodigal son story of this father running out to his son who's coming home saying, I'm coming back to you. And then the third is Jesus washing the disciples' feet of Jesus saying, I will take care of it. All this sin, all this wrong you've done, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to wash it. And he paid for it on the cross. That's why that cross is there too. All these are God saying, come to me. Come to me. I will take care of it but we must come to him. It depends on faith and surrender. And you can think of surrender two ways. One is like a physical image of like, I'm holding on. I've got to do it all. I'm going to earn my standing with God. I'm going to live life my way. And surrender is finally saying, I let it go to you, God. And in letting go, now our hands are open to receive, whereas before they weren't. They were clutched on what we already have, so we couldn't get take anything else in. You can also think of surrender as finally saying it's all up to him, it's all about Him. It's no longer all about me. It's no longer all up to me. It's all about Him. And it's all up to Him. And we open our hands to receive. So the Spirit takes what Jesus did and makes it personal. He applies it. It's not just, well, Jesus you know, loved some people and gave Himself for some people. The Spirit takes us to see that on that cross, it's, no, He was loving me. Me. It's personal. He gave Himself for me, the sins he was dying for, were my sins. Not just like, yeah, Jesus died for people's sins. No, he died for my sins. That's what he was paying for. And the Spirit opens our hearts to see that what Jesus did was done for me. And he makes what's true of Jesus true of us, true of me. He gives us Jesus' status 
and is standing, that now we are beloved children of God, beloved sons and daughters, that Jesus paid for our freedom, and now the Spirit says, like, you are free, takes us and connects us to God, apart from all of our doing, our law-keeping, our rules and commands. And this doesn't throw out the commands and rules, by the way. We'll get that in just a second. And so what grows in us? What grows in us when this happens, when we're free from earning our standing with God, where we know I'm good with God, not based on anything I've done, but based on what he's done to forgive me. When we have God as a secure base and safe haven, what grows in our lives? Well, what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Notice it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of me trying really hard, me getting really disciplined, me having a good week, me doing enough things that are good for me, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. And he says this, this is what the fruit of the Spirit are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't know about you, but I could use some more of those things in my life. And the way we get them is not through working hard at them. Okay, you said this is what I'm supposed to have. Now I'm going to work really hard to have joy. Work really hard to have gentleness. That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Like, working really hard to have gentleness, right? It's like, doesn't really work. Uh, but the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit opens our hearts to see that these are how God is toward us before he ever asks us to be this towards somebody else. That God is loving towards us. That God is joyful towards us, at peace, patient, kind, gentle, good, faithful, faith, uh, self, I, might, I think I missed one in there. It's probably one. There are all of the things, I didn't leave one out on purpose, but all of the fruit of the Spirit, that's how God is toward us before he ever asks us to be that way towards someone else. And that leads us into freedom. The freedom of being loved apart from what we do. And as 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear. That now we aren't afraid of God. That I'm not afraid to go play on the playground of life. That am I doing this right? What's, my, you know, what's dad going to say back there? Now we're free. Or fear of judgment has been cast out. And so what do we do with the commands, the rules in the Bible? It's not like, well, those were just God showing us how we can't really do it. You know, he's just telling us, this is what you want to do if you want to be right with me on your own. No, they, they're a reflection. God's commands are always a reflection of God's character. But now that we're free, we don't obey to be loved. We obey because we're loved. That's what we do with the commands. And so let's make this personal. The question was, how much does God love you and why? And the answer we might give, based on what we do, is, well, he loves me as much as I deserve. Today, I deserve a lot of love. Tomorrow, I don't know, we'll see. Saturday, no, I didn't deserve much love. So that's one way to answer it, based on what we do, laws, commands, rules. How much does God love you, and why? Well, as much as I deserve. But instead, we can always answer, way more than I deserve. How much does God love you? Way more than I deserve. It's unearned, it's undeserved love that isn't dependent on how lovable I am, but on how loving he is. It's not determined by our lovableness or loveliness or whatever the word would be, but on how loving God is because the love flows from him to us, not he looks at us and decides whether we're lovable or lovely and then he gives us love. No, love flows from him because that's who he is to us. And we live from that love, not for it. And that is freeing and liberating. We're free to play in the playground. It's what we were made for. Every single human being longs for the love of God, that they would have it. 
So we said at the beginning is that the Christian life isn't about getting better, but getting freer. And we learn that from Jesus. We learn from Jesus how to relate to God like he does as a beloved child. And if we look at Jesus' life and you're like, I want what he has with God. He wants to teach us it. That's why we surrender to him. We're surrendering to him so he can show us how. And so here's the, the saying from my journal that I wanted to share today um, that came, you know, was just so helpful for me. What would a beloved child of God do? Now I'll explain it if that's confusing. What would a beloved child of God do? So what would change if you came into every situation from a place of being fully loved as God's son or daughter and you were bringing that love into that situation? So instead of living for love, that I need this person to love me and you know that we can all want love in different ways whether it's respect or admiration or affirmation, whatever it is, or to be there for us. It's like coming into all our situations looking for love. What if we came into those uh, living from love that we are coming in of, what would a beloved child of God do in this situation? What would it look like for me to really live from that love as I come into this relationship or this circumstance at work or this frustrating thing that happened to me? And so we, we work as a beloved child of God. We parent as a beloved child of God. We marriage, I know it's not a verb, we marriage as a beloved child of God, we uh, be friends as a beloved child of God, what would it look like for you to do all of life from that identity and from that place? And that's how Jesus lived, that's what he invites us into, he says, come to me, follow me, I'll give you rest, I'll show you how to do this the way God meant it to be, living from his love, not living for it. And that's what it means to be like Jesus. You could also ask, what would I do if I was fully loved no matter what? I've heard some people ask, like, well, what would you do if you were brave? Oh, well, I would do this, this, or that. But what if you change that to, what would I do if I was fully loved no matter what? If you're, like, trying to figure out a decision, like, ah, how do I deal with this discipline thing with my kids? Or how do I do this thing at school? Or how do I do this thing at work? And you can ask for that situation, well, what would I do if I was fully loved by God no matter what? How would it change the way you would do that? I want to end with this quote. I read uh, Tim Keller's biography. It's kind of a biography. Over the summer, he was a, a great pastor and leader. Uh, it influenced me a lot. Um, he died this year, and it was really. I just really enjoyed reading his biography. But one of the things that he said uh, was this: "The gospel is this: we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than ever dare believe. At the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope." I mean, isn't that astounding? Like, good news that you don't even know how messed up you are. Like, God does. <laughs> you have no, I mean, you haven't hit near the depths of your selfishness, your evil, but what, you know, the things we do in the world, all of the things that we do to hurt people and how selfish we are. We don't even know the half, not even half, we don't even know the 99th of it or whatever. Uh, and yet, at the same time, that's true. And we are more loved accepted in Jesus Christ than we can even imagine. So both. We don't know how bad we are and we don't know how good we've got it. And both are true at the same time. And that's what the love of God means. And why can we have this love? Also, that sign says Jesus is why. Jesus has brought it to us and opened it up to us so that we can have it and be loved by God. Let's pray. Father, this love that you give us is beyond our knowing fully. You say that, Ephesians 3, that 
Would you let us know what is unknowable, your love for us? It's just too much for us to even handle. But God, would you this morning, for each of us, give us a fresh assurance of your love for us that it might be a specific circumstance or just maybe our life as a whole that you love us way more than we deserve. Would you let us live from that love and not for it? In your son's name we pray. Amen.